and we're going to be sharing today from the uh, first letter of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is uh, part of a letter from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout the world, which of course is all of us. So uh, let's share together on page 1888, if you're following it in the, in the uh, church Bible, page 1888, and we'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 2 from verses 4 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which you war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Amen. Before I start, I should uh, say for morning tea, if you can hang around, we're going to have a bit of a celebration. There's special cake uh, that's been got for us as a last morning tea. Now, it wasn't until I was after, after I was talking to Jeff uh, that I realised the awkwardness of that. We've got on this cake, this special cake to celebrate our last morning tea, a big farewell sign on it. And I thought, oh, I hope Jeff doesn't think we're farewelling him today, kicking him out now that he's given us that news. Uh, so we're farewelling this building, this place, with blessings. Uh, so hang around for morning tea if you can. I'm going to pray now as we look at God's word. Dear Father, thank you uh, for revealing yourself to us through Jesus Christ, that through him, through your word that we have before us, through your Holy Spirit who speaks to us now, we pray that you'd help us to understand you more, to know what it means to follow you, to know what it means to live in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the parables that's always puzzled me a bit was a couple of lines that Jesus told, talking about sewing patches on garments and sewing, uh, talking about uh, wine in old wineskins and what that really means. 
Till I realised that Jesus was talking to a, a bunch of religious people at the day. They were twi- testing him like, who are you and what are you doing? What are you about? And Jesus gives them an answer that kind of addresses, uh, well, dressmakers would understand how it works and even home brewers would know how it works. I'm not sure everybody else knows how it works. Things like uh, a lot of the, their clothing in those days were made out of leather and if you put new leather on old leather, as the old leather is worn and the new leather stretches or, or tightens up even takes its shape it could easily tear off but for the home brewers around and you've got to know that jesus has something a fascination with wine jesus first public miracle it's like that's not a wine now this is a wine brings out his own wine to show people that that this is what real wine's all about and now he's talking about this wine illustration to go hey you know when you're making your own wine and you top pour it into your uh, leather pouch because they didn't have good old caskets that we have these days uh the leather uh the leather tends to get old and brittle and it won't be as flexible but new wine as it ferments expands so it needs room to to go in and out so why would you put a new patch uh, or or even put new wine into old wineskins that are old and brittle it's going to burst old wineskins can't hold it in it's going to form a crack or at least come out in some sort of way and you can't fix it New wine needs new wineskins. What does that mean for us today? Is it a lesson on home brewing? I'd like to think so. But no, we've got better things uh, that stop that from happening now. But it's an important picture of who Jesus is because they're asking him, who are you? What are you about? This is who he is. So if you're here today and wondering, you know, I've heard this stuff about Jesus, but how does he really fit? Why do I need to know him? Or even if you've known him for a while, you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus for some years, what does this mean for us? Because as Jesus is the new wine, same with his followers, we're the new wine as well. And we can't fit in the old wine skin. We've got a new role, a new job also. What does he mean by this? This is where I think the passage we had read for us in 1 Peter helps explain what's going on in in a very helpful way. It talks about a new temple with new priests and a new audience to the old way of doing religion, the old practices of the Jewish people. So we're just going to work through what does it mean for the new temple, the new priests and the new audience. So Peter starts off this passage, as you come to him, uh, and because we've got it in the, the English, it sounds pretty standard, as you come before God, this is what's going to happen. But he's writing it in Greek, because that was the writing of the day, and he's actually using a particular phrase they use very often when they talked about people coming before God, as in coming before the altar or coming before the temple. It was this particular phrase they used to use, so it's repeated a number of times in the Old Testament. So he's talking about this Old Testament language, and he's using these lots of Old Testament temple and altar kind of illustrations in what he's saying and what he's explaining so as you come to him so even if we think of the altar and the temple that was the idea of coming before the temple was to come before god to get into his presence to be near to him and this was the only place in the world you could do it i'm not sure whether you've realized that if you're a follower of god In the Old Testament times, you had to go to Mount Zion, this big mountain, God's mountain. You had to go to Jerusalem that was built on that mountain. And you had to go to the temple who's on Mount Zion in Jerusalem uh, where the temple is. If you wanted to get come before God, the presence of God, there's only one place you can do that. And it was 
really impressive. It was, it's called today one of the seven great wonders of the world for that era when it was in its heyday. That it was when you come up to it and approach it, you see it off in a distance up on the mountain. But then as you come up to it, you see the great walls that surrounded it. Big, intimidating. You couldn't go around them. You had to go in these gates and even the gates were impressive. As you go into the outer courtyard, uh, you see lots of people all hanging around the temple. Uh, you start to hear the music because the priests are playing music all the time around the temple. So you can hear the activity that's going on. You start to smell what's going on there as well because around the temple they have uh, just big burning of uh, the sweet smelling smells that they've got around there of incense. Uh, but they've also like got the barbecue going because as they're sacrificing animals and burning them uh, to God, it's like the, the meat cooking. It's kind of reminded of every time you walk through Bunnings on a Saturday morning, you get that smell and you just go, oh, I just want to be there. I just want one of those. As you get up closer though and go to the inner court, you go through another gate to the inner court, you're getting closer to the temple itself and you can see the altar, you can see the activity, you can see the smoke coming up and you can see how impressive the temple is. You can really, it's meant to move you to feel like you are coming into the presence of God. <coughs> so if you've seen pictures of it, you know it's a very tall building, single story, but it's very high. So the closer you get to it, it looks really high. And then the architectural design is very straight, straight lines. Uh, the craftsmanship is, is spot on. So each brick as a part of each block of stone, as a part of that, it's just well-shaped, it's perfectly aligned, it had to be. And the two big pillars out the front were so impressive, they even gave them names out the front. This was an impressive building to come into the presence of God. But even then, that's as close as you could get. You couldn't actually see God face to face. It was only the priests who could, were allowed in the temple and even then, God has been already mentioned, God's uh, presence is in the back room behind a curtain. And even then, no priest could just walk up. One priest a year was specifically chosen to go in, do a bit of a clean-up and burn some more incense to God uh, in there. So even though the temple was there, you had to go to the temple, this one place, to be near to God. And you get the feel then what it meant for the Jews. If you're a Jew, if you're a religious person of that day, this was a very special place that you could come to, to draw near to God. You'd come with your sacrifice. You'd come uh, because of who you are. Because there's lots of restrictions around uh, who could actually go in. You had to be a Jew to get inside the, the inner courtyard with your sacrifice. So you had to be a Jew. You had to be a male. Sorry, half our congregations crossed out. Well, actually, if we cross out all the non-Jews, we're all probably crossed out, unless you've got some Jewish heritage in you. We're only allowed in the outer courts to get close to God. You had to be a Jewish male, because that represented your household. You had to have a sacrifice, because it was a sacrifice that was enabling you to come near to God in his presence, and you had to find a priest inside there to make that sacrifice. Because the idea of the sacrifice was to, to come before God, close to him, and say, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done, the way I've lived, but I do want to come near to you. I do want to be in a relationship with you. So what the priest would do, the priest's job was to mediate between man and God. They'd bring man before God and God before man. So they'd get the, the sacrifice, either a lamb or a goat or even a pigeon. They'll put it on the altar. You would then put your hands on the animal and the priest would make you confess your sins. And as you confess your sin, you know, God, we, I haven't been leading my household uh, the way you wanted. Um, 
the sin is, is symbolically transferring onto the animal. So therefore, when the priest sacrifices the animal, it's dying for your sin. It's taking away the penalty. So then you can be connected with God. You can be in a relationship with God. So it's only if you're a Jew, you had a sacrifice, an animal, and if you had a priest to do it, that you could come near to God's presence. And then you can see how culturally the temple was really important if you're a Jew living in that day. That the temple was where you come near to God, where you know God, your relationship with God. It's your security because God's on your side, because he's in your town and your temple. That he is everything to you. So your whole life revolved around temple life, your routines of drawing near to God. Now you can imagine when Jesus turns up, Jesus turns up and he's gone into the temple one day, a number of the Gospels explain this, and he sees the corruption that's going on. The temple had changed. The priests were now all about making money. So whenever you walked in, it cost you money. You had to buy their sacrifice, it cost you money. You had to use their money, which cost you more money. It was just a corrupt thing. So Jesus walks in, turns over some tables, and he says, the house of God, you've turned into a den of thieves. And he's pointing the finger at all the priests in there. Now you can imagine, this is our temple. This is our thing. This is what we do. How upset they would be. So their response was, who are you to say this? Who are you to come and tell us how to run the temple? So what did Jesus say? He replied to them, uh, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now this is shocking to the Jews. They're like, you're out of your tree, mate. This is not the first time people have talked about destroying the temple over the last thousand years before this, been destroyed a couple of times. The last time it's taken them 47 years to rebuild the temple and they haven't got it right yet. Still a work in progress. You know, so if anybody's complaining about how long it's taken us to do the auditorium, that's quick compared to the temple. It's a 47 years. And you're going to raise it in three days. You're out of your tree. And from then, they wanted to kill him. They didn't like what he was saying and what he was doing. But what he was talking about is this new temple, like this new wine that's come along. He is the new temple. And when he's referring to himself as the new temple, he means that everything the old temple was, he is. If you want to come before the presence of God, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of God. He is God. He's before them. He's come to them to be in their presence. If you want to get right with God, if you had to bring your sacrifice to make reconciliation uh, with God, Jesus is doing that. He's the new temple. He's going to the cross. This is the whole, I'll build, rebuild it, I'll raise it in three days. If he's the temple and it gets destroyed on the cross, so I'm going to raise it again in three days. You can't keep this temple down. That's what he's talking about where you can come to the temple to know God, draw near to him, and have reconciliation. You be right with God through Jesus. Not the, the, the bricks and mortar now, through Jesus. This is what uh, Peter is trying to describe in his letter. Through Jesus now, God dwells in him. You have reconciliation through Jesus. You have forgiveness through Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice now that you don't have to make. And that's what's all happened at the cross. So because this is so new, such a radical idea for the day, Peter says, look, you should have known this was coming. The Old, Old Testament prophets even spoke of this. And we drop down to verse uh, 6 and following, where he says, God, uh, God, has a uh, God lays a stone in Zion. 
So you've got, get this, the stones that man laid in the temple were man-made. But God's chosen his own stone and he's laid it on his mountain in Zion. It's specially chosen and precious by God. It's not just an ordinary stone. He also says the one who trusts in him, it's not the one who trusts in it, the temple, the one who trusts in him, the new temple, will never be put to shame. And he goes on to say many will reject this stone, but it's the most important stone. It's the capstone. I'm sure you understand how capstones work. You know, I notice in Roman architecture where they love their arches. Love their arches, they're everywhere. And the arches are made up with pretty standard stones going around, but the top stone of that arch has to be a special stone with special angles because the top stone makes the load all spread out and holds it all together. But as the workmen are going along, if you're building a wall, you want perfectly, round, uh, perfectly square stones with nice straight edges. A stone that's an odd shape, you don't want it. You just throw it to the side until you get to the capstone. That's where it's special. So it says some are going to reject this capstone, but this, this capstone has a message, and that some won't listen, they'll stumble and fall, but others will listen, and they'll be transformed by this new stone, this new temple, this new wine in Jesus. See, this changes how we know God. It's not through a place, but through a person now, through Jesus. It changes how we draw near to God. It's not dependent on your sacrifice coming to him and saying sorry to the animal, but it's through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's, an old, it's, it's something that the old wineskins cannot handle. So it's going to burst out. The temple could not handle or could not contain what Jesus is doing. Jerusalem could not contain what Jesus is doing. Even Mount Zion could not contain what Jesus is doing. He bursts out of all that, all that religion, all that culture, all the ceremony, and it's going to impact the whole world, even to here in Australia, to Brisbane, to us. He busts out of it. But notice who Peter's talking to here. He's not just giving the Jews a lesson, but he's actually written this, church, this letter to a number of churches with Jews, with Gentiles, it means just people who aren't Jews, people of all different backgrounds, different cultures, different nationalities. It's going into people who were never allowed to get near the temple. You're only allowed to get as close as the outer court. But now he's saying, this is what Jesus is to you, that you can draw near to God. You can come before him because of his sacrifice. In fact, it says back in verse 5, it even says that we're like Jesus, that we are like living stones. Not the dead stones that were made up the temple. We're the living stones that he's, being, that he's building into a spiritual house, it says in verse 5. <coughs> now, I'm all excited about next week and moving into the new auditorium with the new building, uh, having our own space. And buildings are important to what we do and how we function. But you notice in Peter's letters here, he's writing to different churches, he never actually addresses the idea of what you need to have in a building. He doesn't mention buildings at all. They're important. I'm sure people, the churches had to talk about where we're going to meet this week, at somebody's house or if we've got a public building, how are we going to do that? But he does talk about a building that's more important. The most important building he's talking about is the house of God and it's the house of God that he's building out of you guys. Out of each of you, collectively, as a church, he's saying. We are the new house of God. 
that we are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus, that God dwells in us and that once we were kept away, but now we're actually in God's presence. God dwells in us. He lives in us as individuals, but as a church, this is where he lives. But it's more than a spiritual house. That's kind of like the new temple. But it's more than just a temple idea because this temple has new priests. What does that mean? I'm not sure when you think of the idea of us being referred to as priests, what we might wear, where we might live, what we might do. But Peter's got some new ideas and we need to understand how that works uh, because it's important to know how things work. In the new auditorium, you might notice, hopefully everything will be all clear and we'll know how everything works. But if you've been over there, particularly over the last few months, everything's got instructions. There's a door that's got a page of instructions how to use the door. The sound and lighting, there's going to be something like three sessions on sound and lighting. Apparently it's not just on off. You've got lots of other controls you can use. Uh, we learned that this week when we were in the office this week and uh, the fire alarm went off. We had the mums group in there with their kids, they know the story. And a few of us go, what do we do? We've never been told how to use the fire alarm. There's this boop, boop, boop noise going on in every room as loud as you can. And so I go to the fire board. You know, the fire board is not off on either. It's a fire board that stands about this high. It's got 50 lights and buttons in it. Uh, so I get there. The builder gets there. Another trader gets there and says, look, it was me. I did something. So we knew it wasn't a fire. But how do we turn the, the alarm off? Because it's going through the whole building. So the first policy was everywhere where you see a light, you push the button. We tried that. That didn't work. And there's two lots of sets of panels. So we're trying the first set. They didn't try the second set. There's three of us pushing buttons on, let, let's just, we've got to stop this alarm. So the mums are going, are we meant to get out of this building? Like, is this a fire? Should we do a rehearsal? So anyway, they moved out of the building. But we're trying to sort this thing out. And we finally got it to stop, to great delight from us. Uh, we thought, we need a lesson on this. So we got the fiery guy in a couple of days later to show us what to do. And he gets me and the, the builder and there's a couple of guys from the office there. And he says, when it went off last time, to turn the alarm off, you would have pushed these three buttons in this specific sequence. You would have done that, wouldn't you? <laughs> me and Richard, the builder, sort of look at each other and like, we didn't say anything. And he looks at us and goes, you would have done that, wouldn't you? You know that bit. And we're like, to be honest, we pressed everything in every sequence. Like, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but fortunately, we somehow got it right after several minutes. But then he shows how to use it. We're going to have fire drill. We're going to make it all work. It's all good now. But it, it made me aware. Look, if you don't know what you're doing, or if you don't know how something works, you've just got no idea of what it's about. Particularly if Peter's saying something like, you guys are the new priests. What does that mean? What are we meant to do if we are the new priests? So something about just being called priests means we've got this priestly role. Just as the old priests were mediators between God and man, we present man before God and uh, we present God before man. We're these mediators. That's a part of our job description. But what does it mean that we make sacrifices or spiritual sacrifices that it talks about? But he talks about it gives us a few hints about how we are the new wine, using that analogy, and how we do things a bit differently, that our sacrifices are different, that we don't go along sacrificing animals day after day anymore. I mean, if we wanted to do that, if we wanted to go back to the old days, I'm sure we could have done that. I could have just mentioned to James, hey, I'm thinking of having the altar on the stage. He would have made beautiful crafted stone altar. I'd imagine. I'm going to send James on a 
he'll be daydreaming about this now. You know, push a button, it'll elevate from the stage. It's probably got nice lights and probably a smoke machine pouring smoke out from underneath. Could have been a really cool altar. But what Peter's saying, not that sort of sacrifices. Not that sort of altar. We're making different sacrifices. And what does that mean to be making these different sacrifices? What are we called to do? He gives us a few guides sort of sprinkled through this. So in verse 5, he says, We're a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now there's a hint. Our spiritual sacrifices are to do with Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. We're not sacrificing animals anymore, but we're pointing to Jesus, who was the ultimate sacrifice. Verse 9, he says, You are, and he talks about being a royal priesthood. Royal sounds pretty special. But that you may declare the praises of him. That's the way we function as priests. We're declaring the praises of Jesus and what he's done that he can bring us to the Father. Declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. So you've experienced what he's done for you. You've got a testimony, you've got a story. How Jesus changed you. All of us is different. There's no script to learn here. It's only how you're going to point to Jesus and how he's changed you and why you trust in him. So our job as priests is to tell people about the sacrifice he's made for us. Tell people about the difference he's made. Tell people about what it means to be brought to God, to have a real living relationship with him. There's nothing you've done, nothing you need to do, or that you do do get you into this, but it's all about Jesus' sacrifice for you. That's how we honour him. That's how we do these spiritual sacrifices. It's all because of Jesus. So it's kind of puzzling them when you meet people, and often if you're talking about church or talking about, for me, it comes up in conversation, oh, so what do you do, work for church? Um, it comes up, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian too. You go, oh, yeah, where do you worship? Oh, no, I've dropped out of church, not interested in church, but I'm a Christian. It's like, well, hang on a minute. If you love Jesus, if you're giving your life to him and you're, you're not proclaiming him, you're not glorifying or testifying to him, you're not letting people know, you're not even a part of God's people when they meet to get that encouragement, your Bible's still probably left on the shelf where you left it a couple of years ago. Like, what? How can you do that? I don't think you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm not sure whether you realise that when you signed up to be a follower of Jesus, at that point in your life, whether it's through church, through family, you grew up knowing it, through kids' church or, or whatever the situation was, when you said, Jesus, I want to trust in you with my whole life. I want to follow you. When you did that, you were being ordained as a priest of Jesus Christ. That all followers of Jesus are priests. That we all are now making this reconciliation between our friends and God and bringing God before our friends. We're all making this spiritual sacrifice of proclaiming his glory to them. That's what we've signed up for. If he's our Lord, that's what we're doing. The Old Testament priests could never do what you've been asked to do. I'm not sure how shocking that is, but the Old Testament priests can't do what we do. Think about it. The Old Testament priest, you had to be born into it. You had to be a part of the Levite tribe. So you had to be a male. And when you were born, you were raised up. You're going to be a priest one day. This is what you need to do as a priest. You are always destined for that job. There's no story of conversion. This is what Jesus has done in, in my life. They haven't got the story. We've got the story. For the Jewish priests, 
they only were allowed to serve Jews. Only Jews were allowed in the inner court, so they only served Jews. They only served at the temple. Only served people if they brought their sacrifice, to make the sacrifice uh, for them in that mediation role. They could never serve their neighbours if they were not Jews. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about that. That if they weren't a Jew, they couldn't go to the temple, they couldn't bring their sacrifice, sorry, this is not for you. They could never talk about God in that way to them. But for us, as a new priest, it's not about the religious huddle that we're all keeping it to ourselves, but we need to, we mediate for our friends, we mediate for our neighbours, our workmates, those who are around us, our family. We're not restricted by a temple. We're not restricted even by a church building that we declare the praise of him wherever we are, to whoever we're talking to, we're acting as priests. And our message that the sacrifice that Jesus made is for them, that Jesus wants them to come into his presence, that Jesus wants them to be in a relationship with him, Jesus wants them to know him, and it's made possible through the cross. This is our function as the new priest. We're the new wine. The old system could not contain it, but we are the new priests with a new message but we're also for a new audience and he lands in verse 12 here with a good reminder i find this verse has something scary about it but there's also some relief about it in verse 12 he says live such good lives among the pagans uh, that just means people who don't know god that they may, they may accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day he visits us not talking about judgment day but it's actually talking about art day or any day that he visits us that they might be glorifying God. See, because we're priests to those all around us, that we have this witness to them, we have this ministry to preaching to those who are in darkness, they're lost. We need to see that they can have light. They are to know Jesus. Now, there's a scary thing. It's kind of the good news and the bad news. The good news is, this is not calling us to be all like street preachers or all doing walk-up evangelism. Some people might have those gifts or that desire. But in my experience, uh, going through Bible college, we did quite a number of exercises doing walk-up evangelism, what worked, what didn't. You had your script, you tried to convince people uh, that they need Jesus on the spot. It was not only tremendously scary for me, I think it was tremendously scary for the people I was talking to. <coughs> Uh, it was not a positive experience, I don't think, for them either. So I think this is, Peter doesn't have in mind, he doesn't finish this blurb, you are priests, now go on every street corner. He's not saying that, but what is he saying? I think he's saying something even more scarier. He's saying you need to live your life amongst those who don't know God. Live your life, those who don't know Jesus. And that becomes a lot more personal, doesn't it? Because when you're living your life and sharing your life with others, they know who you are. You can't fake it. They know what you're like at home, how you treat your wife, how you treat your kids. They know what you're like at work and what you think of the boss. They know how you are living a life that glorifies yourself or glorifying Jesus. They know it because they're close to you. That's scary, isn't it? But when he says, Although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, but what happens if they accuse you of doing wrong, but actually you've been living it all wrong all the time. It's all about you and your glory, not Jesus and his glory. Peter knows it's hard. See, if sometime when you're reading this or if you've got your Bible open there, you can skim over the next two chapters because he's asking questions like, are you respecting the authorities? 
like Jesus respected the authorities? How are you at home between your husbands and your wives? Are you being considerate to each other? Are you building each other up? He asked those questions. Are you the kind of person who takes revenge? Or do you struggle with showing compassion? Do you struggle with showing humility? They're the questions he's asking because it's fleshing out what he's just said. The spiritual sacrifices for him. He sums it up in chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a scholar. But you can live your life that honours Jesus and glorifies Jesus. You're telling people it's because of him is the way I live like this. He's the one that changed my life. That's who we are. This is the audience we've got. God's placed us here in this great mission field to be witnesses, to be priests, to present our friends, our neighbours to God, present God to them. It's what we are as priests. Seven sleeps to go before in the new building. That's if I sleep the night before because I can't wait to see it full like it is this morning. But there's one thing that excites me even more is a spiritual house that God is building here. We reflected earlier over the last five years, but we've been here 10 years and even longer than that. God is building us into a spiritual house, a place where he dwells, a place where we glorify him, a place where we uh, present him to the friends and neighbours we've got. This is what we're doing here, what he's talking about, is more than religion, it's more than tradition, it's more than ceremonies. It's about living relationship with Jesus. It's because of what he's done, not we've done. It's living it out where others can see him. That's a huge challenge for us. But it's something he's equipped us for through his spirit, something he's called us to do and given us this amazing place to do it in. We're going to close uh, in a few moments with a song called Take My Life. Uh, I want you to sing it, really read and understand the words that it is actually coming before God and saying, look, God, I am the spiritual sacrifice to you. I want to hand over my hands and my feet and my actions to you. I want you to use me to glorify you. That's what the words are about. But I want to tell you uh, what I think of when I see this song because there was a lady in this church when we first come here. Her name was Adele. Uh, she had motor neuron disease, which meant that when she first came to church, she was able to walk up the stairs, come and sit with us, but it, it deteriorates her body. So after a while, she had to have crutches because her legs wouldn't work. Uh, then she had a wheelchair and she couldn't come to church. Then her arms stopped working. Uh, then uh, other functions, her mouth, she couldn't speak. She used to use a, a whiteboard to write to us to communicate. And then she, she was still all switched on uh, brain-wise, still heavy thinking, heavy praising God. She was a very deeply committed Christian. But right to the very end, she was praising God because she could no longer talk, no longer write, until uh, eventually she passed away. She asked for this song to be played at her funeral. And every time you see it now, even to death, you go, Lord, take my hands, everything I do, make it honour you. Take my feet, everything I do, make it honour you. But even somebody who's losing all that can say, take it all. Take it all for your glory. As we sing this last song, I just want to reflect, what does that mean for you that it means take my life, take my hands, take my feet, take my words? What does that mean for you? Let me pray before we sing. Dear Father, we just thank you for what Jesus has done. That he's not of the old mould of religion and ceremony, but he's the new wine, the new life that gives us the freedom to come to you knowing that he has made the perfect sacrifice 
the freedom to come into your presence knowing we don't have to go to a specific place like a building or a temple. But Jesus is the temple. Thank you for the honour it is to, to help serve with you that you've made us priests. But Lord, we, in scareness and trepidation, but also confidence, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to serve you well. That we would be the priests who present you to our friends, our neighbours, our family. And that we be the priests who present them to you through the sacrifice Jesus made for us. Lord, give us the strength, give us the courage, and give us your spirit, Lord, to guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.